Welcome to the Truth and Liberty broadcast. We believe we have a mandate to bring godly change to our nation and the world through the seven spheres or mountains of influence. To further this cause, we give away a product every week that will empower you to get involved in changing your life and changing our world. You can register for our weekly giveaway by subscribing at truthandliberty.net. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to receive weekly updates on guests, news, and much more. This is an interactive live cast, and we welcome your questions. To ask a question during the live cast, use the comment or chat features. Now get ready to dive into this week's topics with our hosts on location in Colorado, USA. Hello, everybody. This is Richard Harris. Uh, welcome to the Truth and Liberty Livecast. Tonight, you're going to have an opportunity to watch Bill Federer's presentation at the Truth and Liberty Conference. It is a powerful message with an historical perspective that you will not want to miss. Plato's the first one that talked about everybody owning everything in common. And it sounds nice till you think it through. Somebody has to be in the government handing out the common stuff. And they're always going to be tempted to funnel a little extra to their family and friends on the side and hold back from someone they don't like. And before you know it, it gets discretionary. And the saying is, he who holds the purse strings has the power. So every attempt at everybody owning everything equally always ends up with a deep state bureaucracy passing out favors to their friends ruled by the most corrupt guy at the top. People say, wasn't the early church socialist? No, the early church was the early church. Socialism is counterfeit early church. And the difference is between the word voluntary and involuntary. The, the believers voluntarily sold their property, laid the money at the feet of the church. They didn't have the government take away their property and lay it at the feet of Pilate. When they went into the promised land, every family was given property. If you own property, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. And you can give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity. Uh, Lenin said socialism is a transition phase to communism. And Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So if you don't own anything, how can you be charitable? What, are you going to steal from somebody, break the law, and now you're a thief? No, God entrusts you with stuff and then gives you opportunities to manifest on the outside the love of God that's on the inside. Does that make sense? Anyway, so one of the things in the book, I talk about how to implement socialism. And it's basically a bait and switch for dictatorship. And uh, so uh, one of the tactics they use is called psychological projection or blame shifting. And this is where they blame you for what they're guilty of. And uh, Karl Marx, so, so little kids do it. Um, they say, uh, I didn't start the fight, you did. Or a cheating spouse will accuse the faithful spouse of being unfaithful, right? You project it, Sigmund Freud coined the term, where a person will deny in themselves a negative quality, but attribute that same quality to somebody else. It's sort of the Jussie Smollett complex, right? So you stage an attack against yourself and then you blame it on your innocent uh, party. Uh, David Axelrod was the campaign advisor to President Obama and on NPR radio, April 19, 2010, he said in Chicago, there was an old tradition of throwing a brick through your own campaign office window and then calling a press conference to say you've been attacked. They do the evil thing and they blame you. It's sort of like the uh, Governor Whitmer kidnapping plot where they plotted the whole thing, got some low IQ people as dupes and who thought they were going out for beers and they framed them to say, oh, we caught them in a plot when they were planning the whole thing. So corrupt politicians accuse innocent politicians of being corrupt. So Nancy Pelosi, uh, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi said, it's a diversionary tactic. You demonize and then you do the wrap up smear. You smear somebody with falsehoods and then it's reported in the press. Right, so they're the corrupt people, but they're accusing the other party of being corrupt. Why is this important? Because they're doing it to you every day. 
And I, you need to be aware of this. Uh, Romney admitted to lying, excuse me, Harry Reid admitted to lying about Romney not paying his taxes. And then when he's caught about it, he goes, yeah, I lied, but he didn't win, did he? It works, right? So they, they can justify it. And so uh, it's like, imagine a candidate who um, is colluding with Russia, giving away a fifth of our U.S. uranium in exchange for contributions to our Clinton Foundation. She wants to pay for a steel dossier to accuse her opponent of colluding with Russia. And once she's caught, all she has to do is pay a $113,000 fine to the FEC. Yet the whole country had to go through four years of all that. And um, imagine another candidate running for president who's extorting Ukraine, saying, stop investigating my son or I'm going to hold back billions of U.S. dollars. You want to ha have your opponent accused of extorting Ukraine. You accuse them of the exact crime you're guilty of. That way their name gets associated with it. And most people just make a, where there's smoke, there's fire. They see the name and then and, and the accusation. And if it ever gets pointed back at them, by that time, the water's muddy. The public doesn't know who to trust and they get a pass. And so they give speeches blaming the other side of exactly what they're guilty of. So whenever, the, whatever they accuse you of, they are actually admitting that they are guilty of. They accuse you of being decisive, divisive, they're admitting that they're the ones that are divisive. They accuse you of being hateful when they're admitting that they're the ones that are hateful, right? They accuse you of wanting to steal the elections, they stole the election, right? They accuse you of insurrection where they're the ones that do that. So it's in the Bible. Potiphar's wife was the lustful one and she accused Joseph of being guilty of it. He tried to rape me. She was the guilty one, she projected it. Um, and uh, Lance Wall now mentioned it yesterday, right? That Ahab is this wicked guy troubling Israel and the prophet Elijah shows up and uh, Ahab says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, no, you're the one troubling Israel. They want to project their sin on you. The apostle Paul was in Jerusalem, quiet in the temple and the religious leaders stir up a riot and the police have to come down, they arrest Paul, and they're about tearing him apart, and he finally has to go to a trial. And at the trial, the Pharisees have their prosecuting attorney, and his name is Tertullus. And Tertullus, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, we have found this man a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition among the Jews, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also has gone about to profane the temple. And Paul says... <laughs> They neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogue nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. They're the ones that stirred up the riot, but they wanted to accuse him of stirring up the riot, right? They planned the insurrection. They want to accuse you of it. Nero set fire to Rome and he blamed the Christians and used it as an excuse to kill lots of Christians. You know, they even did it to Jesus. Right? Here are these Pharisees, and Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're your father, the devil. But they have the audacity to accuse Jesus of having a demon. If they did it to Jesus, they're going to do it to you. They are the demon-possessed people. They want to accuse. And so um, Adam did it. Right? So Adam is guilty of sinning. And he wanted to project his guilt on God himself. The woman you gave me, right? It's your fault, right? He's the one that's guilty of the sin. He wants to project his sin. So this is a tactic that's being used every day. Now, there's two tools in a tyrant's toolbox, fraud and force. Fraud is they'll lie to you and 
tell you that they're taking away your freedoms, but it's for your own good, and you let them take away your freedoms because you believe the fraud. But when people begin to see through the fraud, then that leader begins to get unpopular. And the leader then decides to use force. And so that's when they purge their military of anybody with morals and virtue. They purge their uh, Department of Justice. They purge all that. And they begin to use it to oppress their political opponents. So Plato 380 BC in the book on socialism, he says, how does the protector begin to change into a tyrant? He begins to grow unpopular. So watch out when you see a tyrant, a leader getting very unpopular. It says, um, then this unpopular tyrant claims that his life is threatened. There's, and then comes the famous request for a bodyguard. And it's the, oh, somebody's out to get me. And there's a device, this, which is the device of all those who have got thus far in their tyrannical career. Let not the people's friend, as they say, be lost and the people readily assent. All their fears are for him and not none for themselves. So when a tyrant begins to lose popularity, he purges his military and law enforcement of anybody with virtue, and then he uses the military to enforce his tyrannical agenda. Right? So Lenin did it. Lenin got all the generals to sit on their hands while he sent the, the czar to Siberia. And then he calls these generals to Leningrad, St. Petersburg, and they think they're going to be put in charge of Russia. He just machine guns them all to death and puts his Bolsheviks in there. Right? You kill off the old, Hitler did it. He killed off all the old Weimar Republic and then he put in his brown shirt type people. And so when a leader begins to lose popularity, the next thing they want to do is purge the military of anybody with morals and virtue. Right? They want to use maybe a, um, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you're out. But now they're using critical race theory. And I was in Boston and uh, a, a couple whose daughter went to West Point. And they locked all the cadets in the room and said, unless you adopt this critical race theory that people of a certain race are bad and there's nothing they can do to change it. And, and this girl and her roommate wouldn't go along with it. They're kicked out. And it is happening before our eyes. And so we have our government saying the number one threat in America is, right? People that believe in. So this is the setup that's happening. Now, William Henry Harrison is the ninth president. He foresaw this. He says, the danger to all free governments arises from the unwillingness of the people to believe in the influence of designing men. This is the old trick of those who would usurp the government of their country. In the name of democracy, they speak, warning the people of the influence of wealth. History, ancient and modern, is full of such, such examples. The tendency of all governments in their decline is to monarchy. The spirit of faction, a spirit which in times of great excitement imposes itself upon the people as the spirit of freedom. And like the false Christs whose coming was foretold by the Savior, seeks to, and if it were possible, impose upon the true and most faithful disciples of liberty. This is a president in his inaugural address talking about the false Christs talking about the Antichrist and what he says. He says, there's a difficulty in distinguishing between the false and the true. The true spirit of liberty is mild and tolerant while the spirit of party, assuming that to be of liberty is harsh, vindictive, intolerant, totally reckless. The spirit of an intolerant spirit of party seldom fails to result in a dangerous ascension to the executive power introduced amidst unusual professions of devotion to democracy. What's he talking about that? You're gonna have a tyrant and he's gonna say that all those other people are bad. He's gonna sow speeches of division, division, division while he's 
making unusual professions of wanting to defend democracy. Are you beginning to see some things here? And I, I, am I going over your head? I don't know. So, so the most common form of government in world history is kings. It's one person rule. Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, czars. And the constitution is simply an attempt to prevent a president from ruling through mandates and executive orders to prevent one person rule. So when you have a person say, we want to defend the constitution, but we're going to go after all these other people and we're going to uh, concentrate power to the hands of the government so we can do it. He's, he's defying the very spirit of the constitution. So this narcissistic psychological projection, whatever they accuse you of, they're admitting they're guilty of. And so one of the things, it's not just using words, it's staging attacks. So you have a French leader, Robespierre, he orchestrates terrorist attacks uh, against those who won't adopt the new secular order. He gives a speech called Terror Justified, lead the people by terror. The basis of popular government during a revolution is terror. Terror is nothing more than swift, severe, inflexible justice. Here you have a government intentionally wanting to terrorize the population because it's still hanging on to its old Catholic faith and not adopting this new secular order. So I got some stories and I'll go through them quickly. The idea of a government staging an attack against itself and blaming it on innocent people. So you have the King of Sweden, 1788. He wants to get into a war with Russia and uh, Gustav III, but his parliament will not approve funding. And so he has the tailor of the Royal Swedish Opera sew Russian uniforms and has Swedish soldiers put on the Russian uniforms and stage an attack at a Swedish outpost at Pumala. And the news spreads that the Russians had attacked, sweeps through Sweden, and the parliament immediately approves funding for war with Russia. Okay, did you catch that? So 1788, King of Sweden has Swedish soldiers put on Russian uniforms. It happened again with Hitler, 1939, the Gleiwitz incident. Hitler wanted to invade Poland. World public opinion wouldn't support it. So he has Nazi soldiers put on Polish soldier uniforms and attack a German outpost. The news spreads that the Polish had attacked the Germans and this was an excuse for him to invade Poland and take over. Uh, another one of these stories is 1939. The Soviets wanted to invade Finland. World public opinion wouldn't support it. And so the Soviets shell one of their own villages on the Finnish border and make it look like the Finns did it and use that as an excuse to invade Finland during the Winter War. The Japanese did it. They had a railroad off the coast of China and they claimed there was an explosion on the railroad tracks near Mukden. So it's the Mukden incident. And they use this as an excuse to invade China and kill tens of thousands in Nanking, China. And later, an international investigation team walked the whole railroad. There was no explosion. They simply made up an, an, uh, an incident to blame on the innocent, to use it as an excuse to go in and kill a bunch of them. Happened in Istanbul, Turkey. So this used to be the capital of the Christian world for a thousand years, Constantinople. And then the Sultan, you know, Mammoth II conquered it. And, um, but um, there was a leader in 1955 uh, named Menderes. And he, uh, there was Ataturk who was a secular leader of Turkey in the 1920s. And, but then Menderes wanted to get back to a fundamental Islamic caliphate type. And there was this remnant Greek Christian neighborhood in Istanbul that he wanted to get rid of. And so the plot was 
that they would have a Turkish university student put a bomb in the Turkish consulate and in Ataturk's birthplace. The bombs never went off. Yet the newspapers ran with the story, blaming these innocent Greek Orthodox Christians of plotting to blow this up. And they did a pogrom, a uh, purging of Istanbul. They went into the Greek neighborhood, smashed all the windows of the stores, destroyed 80 ancient churches, destroyed graveyards, ripped the Greek Orthodox priests out of their bed and ripped out their beards. And the last of the Greek Orthodox left, right? So here they stage an attack against innocent people and then use it to go after them. Uh, This happened again in Turkey. So the leader now is Erdogan and he is becoming more uh, of a concentrated power leader. And so an anti-Erdogan movement was gaining momentum. And so he decided he was gonna go up in an airplane, fly in a circle, land, and claim there was a coup attempt against him. And so he decides to set up committees, to have hearings, to do questioning, to have investigations, and he pulls out a list of 30,000 of his political opponents, has them zip tied, taken away, and they've not been seen since. And so, um, and so Stalin did the same thing in 1934. There was a growing anti-Stalinist movement. And at the same time, Stalin had a popular supporter named Sergei Kirov. He's the party boss of Leningrad. And he is giving speeches praising Stalin. And so Stalin had an idea. He would have his supporter, Sergei Kirov, assassinated, eliminating a potential rival, and blame the assassination on his political opponents, these anti-Stalinists. Nobody would suspect that he did it. Everybody would believe the anti-Stalinists did it. He used this as an excuse to have hearings, to have questionings, to detain people, to arrest people, and to kill over a million people in the first great purge of 1936. And Hitler did the same thing. And so uh, there was the Weimar Republic. Republic is where the people are ruling through their elected representatives. And somebody starts a party called the National Socialist Workers Party and the head of it is Hitler. And they have a violent arm to the party, sort of an, uh, an under the, sort of like a um, Antifa BLM arm that can do the violence, right? And so this is called brown shirts. And they're nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers. And so Hitler would have his stormtroopers, his brown shirts, go into the meetings of his political opponents and disrupt the meetings. And then they would lock arms and block access to public buildings. Could you imagine people locking arms and blocking things in public? And, and then they would block streets. And then they went into the cities and they burnt the cities and smashed the windows and looted over 7,500 stores owned by Jews in the night of broken glass. And um, then... Uh, their capital got set on fire, an insurrection, and evidence points to Hitler's own people setting the fire, but Hitler decided he was going to have hearings to do investigations, to question people, to arrest people, detain people, and to have them shot without a trial. And when the dust settled, Hitler didn't have any political opponents left. And so this idea of you stage an attack and you blame it on your innocent opponents, and it's that projection. And, uh, you know, Alinsky, uh, who uh, Hillary Clinton did her senior thesis on him and President Obama was part of their group. Uh, In the book called Let Them Call Me Rebel, uh, it says in the 1970s uh, at Tulane University, some students were going to protest George H.W. Bush's address at the United Nations. 
And he said, uh, no, don't just disrupt it. He goes, go there dressed as Ku Klux Klan members. And whenever he says anything supporting Nixon's war policies at the United Nations, uh, stand up, wave placards saying the KKK supports Bush and supports Nixon. And he says that this is what they did with great effect, right? And attention getting results. So this is the idea. You, you go to your opponent's rally and dress up as faux supporters of the rally, but your whole goal is to disrupt the rally. And so now we have um, January 6th. You know, Tucker Carlson showed this video. This is the first people breaking into the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And they're all dressed in black. It's interesting, there wasn't a whole group of people dressed in black at the rally. And they go in there and they look like they're uh, organized. They're one's going one direction, one's going the other, and they begin to break things, right? And, uh, and lo and behold, they find out that um, there were FBI organizers in the crowd. And um, then they find out there's a guy named Ray Epps who the night before saying, we gotta break in there, we gotta break in there. And then there's these magnets on the doors that are very powerful. And the only way you can get into the U.S. Capitol is if you're buzzed in from the inside. And, um, and then here, Nancy Pelosi uh, turns down an offer from Trump to have more security at the Capitol. And uh, it looks, and then there's an FBI informant, uh, uh, an FBI person that says um, his name is uh, Joel uh, Rosenberg. No, is that right? It's um, Matthew Rosenberg. And... Um, and he says that the January 6th was overblown, fake trauma, fake news, full of FBI informants. And, um, you know, Victor David Hansen, a historian that I greatly respect, and he says, um, why did the committee not investigate whether large numbers of FBI agents and informants were ubiquitous in the crowd? A real committee would also investigate other far larger and more lethal riots on iconic federal property months earlier. You know, um, Mar-a-Lago was raided, and Senator Marco Rubio said, uh, this is shocking, but in Latin America and many other countries around the world, here's what happens. A group takes power. One of the first things they do is they begin to persecute and go after their political opponents. When the supporters of their political opponents begin to complain, they begin to target and criminalize opposition. The next thing you're going to see, because it, it is the playbook, is going to be that the people who are supporters of Donald Trump or just conservatives are going to begin to get labeled as potential insurrectionists and harassed by law enforcement. You know, uh, God doesn't just know the future. He knows all the possible futures. And he tells you what they are and he lets you choose. I mean, let's look at um, King Zedekiah. And Jeremiah goes to him and says, okay, here's the plan. You've sinned, right? Uh, the king of Babylon is coming. If you go out and surrender to him, Jerusalem will be spared. If you don't go out, this place is going to be burnt to the ground. It's like, okay, here's the, here's the futures, the potential futures you choose. You know, Adam and Eve. God said, look, you eat from the tree, you're going to die, right? Uh, here's um, uh, Deuteronomy 28, right? If you hearken to the voice of the Lord, you'll be heading up, not the tail above and not beneath, right? If you don't hearken to the voice of the Lord, it says the enemy will come in amongst you and rise up above you and they'll be the head and you'll be the tail. And the diseases of Egypt will come upon you and you'll be in debt. And um, now what's, what's some hope? Well, uh, King Josiah, I love the story. So his grandfather was Manasseh who, who sacrificed kids to Moloch, filled the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of innocent. And the prophets come to Manasseh and says, it's over. 
All the blood of these innocent, I mean, he's a just God after all. And there's nothing more unjust than killing innocent babies that haven't done anything wrong. And, um, and God says to Manasseh, it's over. And so uh, his grandson is Josiah. And uh, eight years old when he becomes the king, 16 years old, he starts to seek the Lord. He's in his early 20s and he tells him to clean out the temple that his granddad had trashed. And the scribes are in there and they find the law of God. Josephus said it was the last copy of the law on planet earth because Manasseh was destroying the law as well as he could. And so they take it and they read it, they bring it to the king and he rips his garments and says, dear God, we are a country that had a covenant with God. We've turned our back on God. We've sinned. We are, gonna, we are in line for judgment. That's, a, that's one of the possible futures. And what does he do? He repents. He sends to a prophetess in town named Holda, the wife of the king's tailor. And she says, tell the man that sent you that judgment will come, but not during his lifetime because he repented when he heard the words of the Lord. And so for the rest of the 31 year reign of Josiah, there's peace and prosperity in Judah. And he, what does he do? He has the biggest Passover they ever had. And then he sends the Levite priests out to teach the law. And you do the, the numbers that was probably during that revival that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got saved, right? If you could use that terminology. And, um, you know, and I just throw, throw this into your, uh, your theology. Um, you know, God created light, travels at 186,000 miles per second. And um, Einstein's theory of relativity is the closer you can travel approaching the speed of light, for you, time slows down. And if you could theoretically travel the speed of light, for you, time would stand still. God created light. He's obviously faster than light. So for God, time effectively stands still, right? Anyway, um, we, we can never comprehend that, but there is a verse in the Bible that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. So we're in a sense moving in extreme slow motion compared to God. <laughs> you know, a thousand, imagine if one day was a thousand years, we're like, you know, anyway. So we get to make our little free will decisions, but God can readjust everything in the universe so that his will is gonna, the book of Revelation is gonna take place exactly the way he wants it to, right? So his will is going to take, but we get to make our little free will decisions inside that. Anyway, um, a couple more thoughts. Um, are you still with me? Yes. Um, so the democracies and republics are attempts to take the power uh, of a king and give it to the people. But what if the king wants the power back? Does he just ask for it? Right? Hi, I want to be king. Give me control of your life. No. And so there's two methods. Fear, when people are afraid, they'll knee-jerk reaction, trade freedom for security. And the second is free stuff. The king's so nice, he's giving you free. It's like a drug dealer takes over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with fear and guns and put everybody in fear and they submit to the mob. Or the drug dealer's so nice, he's giving away free drugs until you get hooked. And then you want more free drugs, you're gonna have to give up control of your life and sell yourself into prostitution. It's like a hunter catches animals through guns or bait. There's a front door, there's a back door approach. The scriptures are fear. Fear of man bringeth a snare, snare is a trap. Whenever you're getting afraid, you're about to be trapped. That's why God says, fear not, fear not, fear not, right? Uh, have, walk in faith. Fear and faith are opposites. You can't have fear and faith in the same heart at the same time. But then there's free stuff, what's that? Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Right? So you're lusting and you're, you're trapped. And um, so uh, some scriptures. So, so fear, how do you create an atmosphere of fear so you can get people to give up their rights and freedoms? You have to sow discord. So the Bible, Psalms 133, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Everybody say unity. unity. But Proverbs 6 says, six things the Lord hates. And the last is he that soweth discord. Everybody say discord. So you have unity, you have discord. You know the name devil in Greek 
diabolos can be translated to divide, to sow discord. Could you imagine being in heaven and somebody sows discord? It happened, Satan, right? He sowed discord and then he's thrown down and he sows discord in the garden with Adam blaming Eve and he sows discord with Cain, Kill, and Abel. And then there's a story. For the first 400 years out of Egypt, there was no king. The people ruled themselves with each person being taught the law and personally being accountable to God to follow the law. And, um, but it almost ended after Gideon. So Gideon just defeated 100,000 Midianites. There is no threat to Israel. They are completely at peace. But Gideon has an illegitimate son named Abimelech. And he is the first one ever to do critical race theory, <laughs> identity race politics. What does he do? He goes to the town of Shechem and he sows discord, division, to divide. He says, is it better for you that all the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his brethren spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech for they said, he is our brother. So forget whether he's good at ruling. He's just one of us. We're identifying with him on a fleshly level. And then they go to the temple of Balbareth, the city treasury, and they take money to hire rioters, protesters, right? And they gave him three score and 10 pieces of silver out of the house of Balbareth, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons which followed him. And what did they do? They committed violence. And they went into his father's house at Ophir, slew his brethren, and the men of Shechem made Abimelech king. So here you have a country completely at peace, but on the inside, somebody is sowing discord, sowing division, and they're doing it based on identity race politics. Now, Israel's experiment of ruling themselves without a king would have ended here rather than a century later with King Saul had not somebody threw a millstone over the wall and it killed Abimelech. And, um, but this idea came again, Machiavelli. So 500 years ago, Italy was a bunch of city-states and they always fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end because it'll stop the infighting that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city and the city does not want to be conquered, they would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals to kill cows, burn barns, set things on fire, sort of like Abimelech paid vain and worthless persons, so he creates it. And then the people, what do they do? They cry out for help. They want to, they, and some prince comes along and says, uh, I can fix it. And so they knee-jerk reaction, surrender their freedom for security. And this prince just pays off the criminals he bribed to create the crisis. Nobody knows the better for, better for it. And he assumes the power as a king, right? And so uh, it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. Uh, Rahm Emanuel worded it this way. You don't ever want a crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do important things you could otherwise avoid. In other words, the crisis is an opportunity to push their agenda. Fox primetime, Ben Dominich, Rahm Emanuel's famous dictum, never let a crisis go to waste. Normal times don't produce the outcomes that the authoritarian left once because people are not scared enough to give them the limitless power they crave. Crises are necessary. And so if there aren't any on offer, they manufacture them. So you and I see a crisis, our response is how can we help people through it? They see a crisis, their response is how can they usurp power through it, right? You want to get people into fear so you can take away their freedoms. Imprimis had an article where they quoted um, Klaus Schwab and Thierry Mellorette, right? That if the past five centuries in Europe and America have taught us anything, it is this. Uh, acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. 
Interesting quote from Henry Louis Mencken, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it, right? So you want to create a crisis, a global crisis, a climate crisis, any type of crisis and say, well, I'm here to save, but I got to take all your rights and freedoms to do it. This is how the British took over India, don't have time, but they went in there in 1714, had a trading post, turned into a trading fort, and then they ended up giving guns to one kingdom, guns to another kingdom, sowing discord, and then they fought each other, and then the British came in to restore order, and they took control, and they did this again and again and again until they took over all of India. British tried doing that in America. Settlers and Indians reached an equilibrium. British come into the Indians and promise them money for scalps. And right, uh, Johnny Burgoyne promised the Mohawks money for scalps. And um, it, they sowed the discord. Did the British care about the Indians? No, they just wanted to sow this discord. And it's mentioned in our declaration. The king has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Right, so you have a foreign power coming in wanting to stir up killing why? So they can seize control. It happened again during the War of 1812. The British controlled Pensacola, Florida. And just north of that is Fort Mims, Alabama. And the Red Stick Creek Indians. You know the French pronunciation of Red Stick? Baton Rouge. Right? And so the British go to the Red Stick and promise them money for scalps. And these Red Sticks capture Fort Mims. And after they capture it, they kill 500 people. This is the historical marker. Here, Creek Indian War, 1813-14, took place the most brutal massacre in American history. Indians took the fort with heavy loss, then killed all but about 36 of the some 550 in the fort. Creeks had been armed by British at Pensacola in this phase of the War of 1812. Right? So here, the Americans and the Indians had reached an equi equilibrium. The British come in, promise them money for scalps. They want to have this rioting and killing. Why? Do they care about the Indians? No, they just want to seize power of, over the whole thing. So this concept was sort of theorized and put into a nice clean equation by Hegel, who influenced Darwin and who influenced Karl Marx. And so he put it into a triangle, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Sounds complicated, but it's not. So Marx says, okay, the thesis is the status quo. Everybody's been getting along the way they've been getting along. You have to create an antithesis. You have to create a crisis. You have to create a problem. You have to sow discord, sow division, like Lucifer, right? And you have to create a problem that's real bad so everybody gets into fear. And then once they get into fear, they'll panic and they'll give up some of their freedoms to settle for an answer that's just half as bad. And then that becomes the new starting point. You create another problem that's real bad. And then everybody gives up some more of their freedoms to settle for an answer that's half as bad. And then you create another problem that's real bad and everybody settles for your answer that's just half as bad. And every time they settle, they're giving up a little of their individual freedom, right, to the state. And, um, and so Karl Marx gave a name to this. He called it critical theory. Right? So you go into a country and you observe and categorize all the groups in the country, ethnically, economically, religiously, racially, and you call some victims and others uh, oppressed, right? Are the oppressors and the ha haves and have-nots, victims and oppressors. And so originally it was economic and he would organize the proletariat against the bourgeois, which is the working class against the business owners, the poor, and then they organized racially, blacks against the whites, then Catholics against the Protestants and Muslims against the Christians, Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. I mean, the people in the Congo and Rwanda saw themselves as one, but the Belgian and German colonizers went in, measured them and their features, and they said, you're a Hutu and you're a Tutsi. They literally created artificial racial distinctions that had not been there before. Why? So they could pit them against each other and sow division. 
and have them genocide each other. And then they could come in and restore order by taking control of the whole thing. And so this Karl Marx concept was being taught. We even had the founder of the Black Lives Matter saying, we're trained what? Marxists. And so Castro said, the revolution needs the enemy. The revolutionary needs his antithesis, which is the counter-revolutionary. And if enemies were lacking, they had to be fabricated. You have to create them out of nothing, like a white supremacist, like a Christian nationalist. You got to create something that's not there and make it the enemy, right? And Jesus talked about this. He says, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand, right? So patriotism, we want to all be one, you're right, one, one nation under God, you're unified. Well, if you want to destroy the country, you got to sow division. Lincoln talked about this in his famous address, a house divided against itself can't stand. It's introducing an autoimmune disease into the body politic. What's an autoimmune disease? It's where your own immune system starts attacking your own organs on the inside. And so this is going into a country, patriotism is the enemy. You get people to identify with subgroups and pit the subgroups against each other to sow division. Franklin Roosevelt talked about this. He said, uh, whoever seeks to set one nationality against another seeks to degrade all nationalities. Whoever seeks to set one race against another seeks to in, um, uh, enslave all races. So-called racial voting blocks are the creation of designing politicians. Remember William Henry Harrison said the failure, you know, is, is the, the unwillingness of the people to believe in designing politicians. And... Um, so FDR said again, 1942, remember the Nazi technique, pit race against race, religion against religion, prejudice against prejudice, divide and conquer. NBA player Charles Barkley on CBS sports panel last year said, man, I think most white people and black people are great people. I really believe that in my heart. But I think our system is set up where our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats are designed to make us not like each other so they can keep their grasp of money and power. They divide and conquer. We're so stupid following our politicians. Their only job is, hey, let's make the whites and blacks not like each other. Let's make the rich and poor not like each other. Let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe this in my heart, right? And then you got uh, Saul Linsky, um, and he said the community organizer's first job, right, first step in community organization is community disorganization. Disruption of the present organization is the first step. Organizer's first job is to create the issues or the problems. The organizers must rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. An organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent. Fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. The organizer polarizes the issue, helps lead his forces into conflict. He must search out controversy for unless there is controversy, the people are not concerned enough to act. And um, anyway, uh, did you know he has an acknowledgement in the front of his book to Lucifer? Lest we forget, at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment, did it so effectively, he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. This is Lucifer's strategy. How do you destroy a marriage? So discord. How do you destroy a family? So discord. How do you destroy a church? So discord. How do you destroy a country? So discord. This is his strategy. He did it when he was in heaven. He sowed discord. He's cast down earth. He sows discord. What does God say? Unity. Forgive. God had to know that we wouldn't totally mentally agree with everybody. I mean, most, most guys don't agree with their wives on everything, but you love them. I mean, I don't even agree with myself on everything. <laughs> you know, and um, now I want to point out there's, there's two uh, main waves of pastors that came into America. The first wave were Calvinists in 1600s, and they had this idea that God has a plan for your life, your marriage, your family, your church, your government. Find out what God's plan is, put it into place. But then in the early 1700s, you had pietist Lutherans come to America, and they focused on experience, that you have to have an experience with Jesus. And... Um, 
Anyway, this goes back to Martin Luther had a personal revelation that just shall live by faith. It was so personal to him that he stood up to the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor and said, unless you can prove me wrong from scripture, here I stand, so help me God. Very personal to him. But some German princes wanted to break away from Rome. And they go, this is our chance. Kingdom of mine, you're all now Lutheran. And the people say, okay, okay, we're Lutheran. Uh, what do we believe? So for the people in the kingdom, it's not the same personal revelation Martin Luther had. It's just a new state doctrine. So a revival movement starts called pietism. That said, if you're really a Christian, it's more than just doctrine. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And when you do, you're not going to do the worldly things you used to do. You're not going to go to the bars and brothels and lewd theater and get involved in worldly things like government. (laughs) What was that last thing? Yeah, government's filled full of worldly people. If you're really a Christian, you're not going to be involved. Right? So you had, um, so the Calvinist idea is government's dirty. Get in there and try to clean it. And the pietist idea is government's dirty. Don't get involved because you might get dirt on you. And so there's a ditch on either side of the road, right? And so the Calvinists, they were plan focused. And over time, they got called old light and they got into formal religious, religiosity, dry works and legalistic and sort of spiritually sort of dead. And the Lutherans were like this pietist. No, it's a personal experience. They were called new lights. And uh, they said, no, it's a relationship with God. It's very personal. And it's so personal that you're not going to, you're going to withdraw from the world. And it's holier to withdraw from the world. And um, anyway, um, the, uh, the, the, we have to give credit where credit's due. So these pietists in Germany, uh, focused on a personal relationship with the Lord. In the early 1700s, they had a revival movement of young people and they were called Moravians because it's a little kingdom on the next to Czech Republic. And these Moravians, not supported by any missionary organization, on their own, these young families, couples go out to Egypt, to Suriname, to Iceland, to all around the world. Imagine all this woke energy, instead of tearing stuff down, is being used to evangelize the world. Right? And so they would go into countries and they'd tell the king, we're not here to overthrow you, we just want to get people saved. And so they say, okay, sure, come in. And then you had, um, uh, but they wouldn't want to get involved in politics. And so you had um, a boatload of Moravians going to Georgia. On the boat was John and Charles Wesley. There's a storm, Wesley's freaking out. He sees these Moravians just praising the Lord. And he's like, you know Jesus better than I know Jesus. Anyway, after a failure in Georgia, Wesley goes back to England and he's depressed and he's invited to a prayer meeting of the Moravians and they're praying all night long. And he says, my heart was strangely warmed. And then he goes to Moravia and he lives with the Moravians for eight months. He calls it the religion of the heart. Then he goes back to England and he starts the Methodist revival movement. And he gets his friend George Whitfield involved who comes to America, preaches up and down. And what's he preaching? It's not just this old light, religiosity, dead stuff. You have to have an experience with Jesus and he's having this revival. And it's great. Except some of them say, okay, now that we have a personal experience, it's so personal, we're just going to withdraw from the world. It's holier not to be involved. So there's a ditch on either side of the road, right? And so, um, uh, and then, so, did you, do you understand that? That's the, the origin of what we're facing today, right? You have people saying, no, God has a plan we need to put in. There's a middle of the road. The middle of the road is, yes, it is a personal experience with Jesus that God loves you as an individual, but God does have a plan and he wants to have a godly plan. Why? So that people can be free to hear the gospel. I tell people the most important thing is to bring people to Christ. The second most important thing is to preserve the freedom to do the most important thing. 
If you really believe the gospel is the answer, you're gonna be involved wanting to preserve the freedom to preach the gospel. Because if Sharia law, Islam takes over, it's the death penalty to preach the gospel. If North Korean or communist China takes over, they're, they're gonna throw you in a labor camp. And if I was in Houston, right? And the first open lesbian mayor of Houston pushed through a hero bill that made it a crime to say anything against the homosexuals or whatever. She subpoenaed all the text messages and sermons of all the pastors, right? And if, if they can say that that behavior is not a sin, then really there are no sins. If there are no sins, you don't need a savior. Undermines the whole gospel. If you really believe the gospel is the answer, you're going to want to preserve the freedom. And so this is an, one more thought. I do have a couple more. Um, so we have a declaration that says government from the consent of the governed. And uh, number 30 is the silence equals consent. Everybody say consent. So this number is chapter 30. It's an overlooked chapter. Um, it has lots of scenarios. One of them is if a daughter binds herself while she's still living in her father's house in her youth and her father hears her vow and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day he hears it, then none of her vows shall say, and the Lord releases her. That's come down to us as wedding ceremonies where there's vows. And the pastor says, if you're silent, you're giving consent. The father hears the daughter's vows. If he's silent, those vows stand. If you're in the church and you're hearing these wedding vows and you're silent, you're giving consent. And, it's, and, the, and anyway, so in, in law, it's called the rule of tacit admission, T-A-C-I-T. And um, an admission reasonably inferred from a party's failure to act or speak. And so... If the church member's silence gives consent to a wedding, if the church members are silent when there's sins in their community, they're giving consent to the sins. If there's killing babies and you know about it and you are silent, you are giving consent to the killing of babies. And if you give consent to sin, you will share in the judgment of the sin. You know, Moses didn't get, Moses and Aaron didn't get to go into the promised land. The story is the waters of Meribah and God says, hey, Moses and Aaron come to the tabernacle. And then God says, uh, Moses, um, take the rod and go speak to the rock. Water's going to come out. And then Moses lifts up his rod and smites the rock and yells. And, and then later in the chapter, it says, um, and the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron, because you believe me not, you shall not bring the congregation to the land. But then there's this line, Aaron will not enter the, the land because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. You just read the chapter, Aaron did nothing. The whole chapter, he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He, he didn't, wasn't mentioned. All it was, was he was at the tabernacle door, heard God say, Moses, go speak to the rock. And the next thing you know, it says, Aaron doesn't get to go into the promised land. He was just silent. He saw Moses get all upset, take that rod, lift it up. And he's about to smite it, not just once, but twice. And Aaron's just watching. Just, he, didn't, he didn't say anything. He didn't say Moses stop or anything. And in Leviticus, it says, confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. You know, California, I was just out there. They have a Proposition 2223 where, you can, where you, it'll be legal to kill a baby up to 28 days after birth. New York has a similar thing. If church members know that they're killing innocent babies and church members are silent, there's no more unjust thing than killing an innocent baby that's not done anything wrong. And if you are silent, you're giving consent to that. Proverbs 24 says, rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to death. Don't stand back. Don't let them die. Don't try to disclaim responsibility by saying you didn't know about it. For God who knows all hearts knows yours and he knows you knew and he will reward everyone according to their deeds. Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
was not silent. He resisted the Nazis with his confessing church movement. He says, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guilty, guiltless. Martin Luther, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of the gospel. Oh, we just preach the gospel at our church. We just preach the, we just focus on the, the spiritual. If I profess the gospel, but accept that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides just mere flight and disgrace. You know, their tactic is to guilt trip Christians into being more Christian than Christ. If you're a Christian, you will let them teach this boys and girls bathroom and boys and girls sports and fluid sex. I was in Missouri, Pacific Missouri, a couple weeks ago, and the assistant pastor had his three-year-old son in a government preschool. His three-year-old son comes home and says, I'm a girl. He says, who told you you were a girl? Did your friends? No. Did your brother? No. Did your mom? No. Did your teacher? Yes. Three years old, a public school teacher is telling a little three-year-old boy, you're a girl, you're a girl. And they're saying, if you're really Christian, you'll tolerate that. Christians are tolerant. Christians are loving and tolerant. If you're Christian, you'll tolerate. Yet Jesus, would Jesus teach that to little kids? Jesus said, whoever made them at the beginning made them male and female. And the man shall leave the father, mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they're saying, if you're really Christian, you will tolerate them teaching something that Jesus would never teach. So if you're really Christian, you won't act like Christ. Yet Jesus said, if you know they're teaching that, and if you are silent, your silence is giving consent to that the same way your silence is giving consent to wedding vows. And Jesus says, if you're silent and you allow, if you cause one of these little ones that believes me to sin, it would be better for him that a large millstone were hung around his neck and he'd be thrown in the depths of the sea. It will be a rude awakening. <laughs> it will be a rude awakening for church members who think they are being spiritual by not getting involved when they realize by their silence, they are inviting the judgment of God upon their heads. Oh, I'm really spiritual. I don't get involved. It's just me and God. I'm holier than you are, you people that are getting involved in the worldly government. No, you're silent. You know what they're teaching. You're giving consent by your silence. And God will judge you as if you committed the sin. Well, if I can indulge on you just a little bit longer, uh, what, let's look at it from God's point of view. If we get through this crisis, there'll be another one. We get through that crisis, there'll be another one. Every generation has had crisis. Bubonic plague, Spanish flu, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan. There's always crises. And the crisis is an opportunity for the people that are alive at the time to reveal what's in their heart. Sort of the mini self-sorting out of the sheep and the goats. It's not the ultimate one, but um, you know, people say, well, God knows what's in my heart. Yeah, he does. He knew what was in Abraham's heart, but he wanted to see Abraham be willing to take his son Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah and be willing to kill him. Imagine a guy watching football and you say, hey, uh, when was the last time you told your wife you love her? Uh, I can't remember, but she knows my heart. It's like, okay. Uh, when was the last time you did anything to show your wife you love her? Uh, I can't remember, but she knows my heart. It's like, dude, we need to have a little talk. <laughs> it's like, oh, God knows my heart. Yes, he does know your heart. And he wants to hear some words out of your mouth and he wants to see some actions. And he's putting you in a crisis situation. So you're squeezed to have to make a decision. You're either gonna be silent and give consent to that and they're gonna come out of the closet and be wicked. 
I'm convinced God's going to let, like here's Disney coming out with an Antichrist cartoon. I mean, it's, it's going to be, you're silent, you're going to be giving consent to that. Or you're going to say, I just can't be silent anymore. I got fire in my bones. I got to speak up. I got to do something. And the crisis is the opportunity that God's putting you in. You know, we're the bride of Christ. And every romance novel, every Hallmark movie builds up to a decision-making moment where there is a forsaking of all others and choosing the one. I think God is pushing the world to a decision-making moment. Are you going to care about all others? What are they going to post about you on the internet? What are they going to, are they going to uh, unfriend you and not follow you and block you and, and cancel you? Do you care about what everybody says about you? Or are you going to say, I only care about Jesus, right? Like when I close my eyes for the last time, all I care about is what he says about me. This is our time. Uh, freshman chemistry class, the teacher has a beaker with a solution and pours in a catalyst that causes a reaction. And some stuff precipitates, gets heavy, floats to the bottom, and other stuff gets effervescent and bubbly and floats to the top. The time period we're living in is the solution in the beaker. The catalyst poured in is our crises. Some people's reaction is to precipitate, to get heavy, to drop out, to run away, to hide, to deny Christ, even take the mark of the beast. And other people's reaction is to get bolder and more effervescent. Like the early church, when they were persecuted, they prayed for boldness. God, give us more effervescence. Where do you need us? And historically, the Christians would run to the plague and they'd help out. They'd run to the war. They'd run to the needy. The Christians would respond. Well, there'd be like, oh, stay away from me. Uh, unclean, unclean, right? So God's point of view. God existed forever. There's never been a time when he didn't exist. And he makes everything. You know how big God is? In uh, 2003, they focused the powerful Hubble telescope on a spot in the sky where there was nothing. And the spot was so big that, uh, the spot was so small rather, that um, I'm gonna just flip to this slide for the sake of the illustration here. Um, the spot was the size of a, of a grain of sand. Imagine looking at the Milky Way. It's, it's hard to find a spot where there's not a star. And, um, but they, they focused the Hubble telescope on a spot that was so small, the size of a grain of sand held between your fingers at arm's length against the night sky. Nothing there. They focused it for, for 11 days. When they developed the images in that spot where there was nothing was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. And this is the picture. It's the Hubble Ultra Deep Space Field. This is the furthest picture ever taken away from the earth. And every dot you see is a galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars in that little tiny spot. And then they look other places and they see more stars and more stars. And now with the James Webb, they're looking even further. And light travels in waves with blue being the shortest wave and red being the longest and the slowest. They saw the red shift and they saw these galaxies were moving away from us. And they began to look and now they estimate the observable universe is 93 billion light years across and get this, still expanding at the speed of light. And the largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. It's so big, if you were to place Stevenson 2-18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one single star that enormous? And God made it all. And he made you and he made your spirit. What could you possibly offer this being that is so powerful? Well, there is something. You know, what's a, what's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, enormous vaporized. A rock cannot love you. 
So at some time in eternity past, God said, been there, done that. Um, you know, I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. So in this framework of everything God controls, time, matter, space, energy, he created one little thing he doesn't control, your will. Now he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made you different than everything else. He doesn't need your love. He's not incomplete in any way and your love somehow completes him. No, he is complete all by himself. He doesn't need your love, but he wants it. Parents don't need the love of their children, but they want it. And if God were to force you to love him in any way, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him and he would know your response would not be a voluntary love response. So people say, if God, and so, so he loves you, God is love. You know, he, he created, he loves everything he created, but he could never be loved back because if he gave it the free will and he stepped out of line, you have to judge it. You know, I was looking up the word angel in the Bible. It appears in the King James 289 times. Never once does it say the angels love God. They worship him, they praise him, right? They smite his enemies, they deliver his messages, there's ministers under the heirs of salvation. But the word love does not describe God's relationship with angels. They're not made in the image of God and Jesus didn't die on the cross for angels. The word love appears all through where it talks about man, men and women. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Jesus rises from the dead, asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? We are beings that are created with the capacity and ability to love God, but love by definition must be voluntary. So, he, so the second thing is he has to hide himself behind his creation because if he ever reveals himself to you in all of his universe creating omnipotent power brighter than a trillion suns, if you didn't melt, your response would be like the apostle John, the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet, is dead. It would be immediate and instinctive in the face of such power. And God said, I can do instinctive responses all, all eternity long. I, I know that because I'm interested in this voluntary thing. So he has to hide himself behind his creation, right? People say, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Because the moment he showed himself in all of his omnipotent power, your free will is gone. <laughs> and the same hiding of himself that creates our free will necessitates that we have faith. Join us next time for the Truth and Liberty broadcast. Find tonight's episode and related articles and links at truthandliberty.net. Truth and Liberty is viewer supported. If you'd like to help us continue our live casts, you can make a donation at truthandliberty.net. 